trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, Patriots. This is Mason President Gregory Washington, welcoming you to another Access to Excellence podcast, where we talk about the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. Facing those challenges requires bold action. And my guest today is one of the boldest. Tyler Cohen, the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason and Faculty Director of Mason's Mercatus Center, is a best-selling author, podcaster, blogger, and well-respected columnist for Bloomberg. In fact, in 2011, Bloomberg Business called him America's hottest economist. He is the creator of the Emergent Ventures Project, a fellowship and grant program that seeks to support ideas that advance prosperity, opportunity, and well-being. An offshoot of that is the FAST Grants Program that funds scientists and academic institutions working on COVID-19-related projects. All told, Emergent Ventures has raised more than $60 million in just two and a half years and has funded upwards of 250 projects. Tyler Cohen, thank you for your efforts and welcome to the show. President Washington, thank you for having me on. All right. Well, let's get started. Give us some background. How did Emergent Ventures get started? Well, to go to the very beginning, way back when, I was an undergraduate at George Mason University, and I came here because I thought, this is a school that does things differently. And with that decision, I committed for the rest of my life to do things differently. Outstanding. So that's the background, but that's like 40 years ago. But to fast forward to the present, I deal with philanthropy quite a bit, and I have realized that many foundations, they're very slow, they're very bureaucratic, they're very consensus-oriented, not diverse enough, and they all tend to be chasing after the same people, the same ideas. So I wanted to set up an award system that, in essence, anyone could feel they would win. So the application is just one page. It doesn't ask if you have a college degree. It doesn't ask for letters of recommendation. It's just, who are you? What's your idea? And then there's an interview. Some people win awards or fellowships. Obviously, most of the time, the answer is no. But we thought that by stripping down the application process to its bare essentials, we would bring in new and diverse talent. And that was the inspiration behind Emergent Ventures. But it comes from my very early ties to George Mason, which, of course, continue. Well, that is cool. You kind of explain what you mean when explaining Emergent Ventures with the quote, something you can win that's not about connections. That's correct. So there is only one layer of no in Emergent Ventures. That is myself. And just to give an example, there was someone who applied recently. His name is Rashid Griffith. He's from Barbados. And he, for one thing, he's not an American, which makes it harder for him to get a lot of awards. But he has a project to create a podcast about the relationship between China and the Caribbean, which to me is just a new and unusual and innovative idea. And he didn't need a lot of money to do this, but he needed some amount 
amount of money. He's not in a position where he can go through a foundation application, wait six to nine months, have a staff write up a lengthy document. He applied. He won. I've had several wonderful chats with him. I, I went on his podcast. And now it seems he's on the verge of getting a book contract to write about this topic. Not a person with an advanced degree, super, super smart, has a remarkably deep knowledge of China in the Caribbean. Really? Yes. Very interesting. Wow. Okay. One other example, if I may. No, please. There's a nonprofit called Recidiviz, which is now well known. They were on one of those time lists of most influential. But Clementine Jacobi, who started the nonprofit, she came to me, filled out the short application and said, I need some sum of money. I won't say how much, but a fair amount to quit my job in the tech sector and work for one year setting up this nonprofit. And I need it now. She won. We sent her the money. Recidivism now has been the leading institution that as prisoners are released from jail because of COVID risk, Recidivism is the consultant which tells them which are the prisoners who are safe to release, who are not going to commit crimes again. A data-based analysis. They have helped liberate tens of thousands of Americans who might have deserved to be out anyway, but if nothing else, their risk of catching COVID and passing away is now much lower than before. And they were just someone who needed money right away. She's like, we want to do this now. And we hmm. got her the money. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. You also mentioned some of the challenges with traditional philanthropy. And you describe philanthropy as being broken. So how does Emergent Ventures prove or disprove that? Well, a lot of great things happen in philanthropy, just to be clear. So if you look at the major public health advances of the last few decades, virtually all of those have had significant philanthropic support. But nonetheless, it seems to me there's a kind of monoculture where too many decisions are made by committee. There's too much credentialism. I don't even think it always is like a closed club, but it feels that way. Like, well, which program officer do you know here? And how many people can vouch for you? And I just thought that some percentage of the philanthropic sector should get away from that, do something totally different. Wow, this is amazing. I got a group of folk that I'm going to have you speak to one of these days about this very, very issue. Great. Talk to me a little bit about Fast Grants. How does it work? Fast Grants was an offshoot of Emergent Ventures. It came along as the pandemic was heating up, and uh, my co-founder of Fast Grants was Patrick Collison the Irish tech entrepreneur who is co-founder and CEO of Stripe. And Patrick and I were in contact with a lot of researchers who wanted to get working against COVID right away now. This is early April, right? Pandemic is just heating up. But they were faced with a grant system that often required six to nine months to get them an answer. And at the peak of the pandemic, as you know, 4,000 Americans are dying a day. Jobs are disappearing. GDP right. is plummeting. You can't wait six to nine months. So we set up a refereeing and application system actually in a few days time working very frantically and we were able to give researchers an answer within 48 hours and the money within another 48 hours or sometimes even less so we supported about 250 anti-covid projects the best known is the saliva direct spit test from yale a version of which as you know has been used to reopen the mason campus that's right but it also supported the nba bubble during the playoffs that year and look this is a crazy world they could not get a rapid grant from their own school of public health and that is Yale right a wealthy university and the notion that they would come to us at George Mason because we had a more effective system of philanthropy set up that just tickled me pink that was great you don't know how deep that is 
that one of arguably the top 10 institutions in our country, right? One of the entities that when we look out and you say Yale and Harvard and what that conjures up in individuals from the perspective of academic excellence. Correct. And we don't have more money than Yale, as you know. Oh, we don't have a tenth of what (laughs) Yale has money. But what we have here is something they didn't have. And that was innovation and spirit. Exactly. And you were able to put that together. And this matters now. And we're going to get this done. And that, to me, is the Mason spirit. No, that's just amazing. It it is an amazing thing to see. Uh, Talk to us about some of the other projects that Fast Grants funded. What else is it looking at? We have done a lot on mRNA vaccines. A lot of the early work on monoclonal antibodies we funded. When the variants, the COVID variants, started to spread in the United States, within three days, we had gotten monies out to eight different academic laboratories that would sequence COVID cases and see where the grants were. Now, if you look in the Biden bill, there's a lot of money allocated to doing exactly that, which I'm all for. That's great. But the sad thing is, for the most part, those monies have not reached anyone yet. Again, this notion of we don't have more money, but we have an idea. And the idea that someone should take responsibility for the fact that these sequencing centers need the money now. That's one of the things we did. And we were set up to be quick. It was like just pressing a button and the centers had the money. There's other stuff we've invested in. I'm not yet sure if it will work, but we were early funders of this idea of a pan-coronavirus vaccine that would address all forms of coronavirus. That is speculative, may or may not happen, but we were there early. There's another device, comes from UC Berkeley. It's a little bit like that Star Trek device where you scan someone's body, but this uses CRISPR on your DNA, and it can diagnose a very wide variety of conditions, including COVID, in half an hour. This thing is built. It works. It's not approved by the FDA. It's not been brought to it's market. It's like the little tricorder thing where they it's scan exactly you. exactly the tricorder thing, but it takes <laughs> oh, half an man. hour. This the tricorder thing is like three seconds. <laughs> so I'm very hopeful about this. But again, life is complicated. Not everything succeeds. But we've put a lot of irons in the fire that I think longer term could pay off big time. Wow, that's really cool to see. Well, how did it begin? So you'd already had this Emergent Ventures up and going, and that was working. Just one day, you just say, COVID hits, and I want to support this? Is is that how it started? I was chatting with Patrick Collison. I mentioned he was a co-founder. Patrick and I were saying, we've got to do something about this COVID thing, right? Well, what can we do? Well, we're both very interested in science and research. We're not people who are necessarily out there, you know, as doctors, obviously. So we thought there was room to be first on the ground with getting funds to researchers. And after a few hours of chatting, uh, we decided to do it. Next day, the software was being written. A team of referees was being assembled. The finance and payments team at Mercatus was already used to doing emerging ventures to simply repurpose that and send the money to COVID researchers. That was relatively easy. So you basically had an infrastructure in place already. You needed some coders to code up the software to make it specific for this fast program. You're off to the races. That's correct. And then uh, we just put word out on Twitter. And in less than a week, we had 5,000 applications, almost all of them serious, not uh, not joke applications, and a team of 20 referees. And they dug in. It was tough, especially for them. But by the end of that first week, we were sending money out. That is amazing. Let's talk about the economy. You know, I find the economy very interesting right now. We're recovering rapidly as an economy. We're on track to reach levels of GDP that would have been expected before COVID, right? We're almost back. I think we were within 3% of being back to where we was COVID. But I think that masks some shifts 
in composition of what the United States is actually producing, right? So spending on cars and trucks is 15% higher than what it would have been had we stayed on the COVID trajectory, right? Had not experienced COVID at all. Spending on furnishings and durable household goods and equipment is up 16.6%. And spending on recreational goods is up 26%, right? Pets, try buying a a fine dog right now. Yeah, try buying a Peloton. This is the reality. But there are other parts of the economy that are just woefully down, right? Recreation services. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when I look at this, even though we're almost at the number where we were before, it doesn't feel like it. This feels like it's a different economy. And so I just wanted to get your feeling in two ways. One, do we ever go back to a post-pandemic economy? Or will we see it in a reasonable period of time, like, say, two, three years? And what does that mean for individuals who, for lack of a better term, were ingrained in that more traditional tract that we had before 2019. I think a lot of the changes will stick. There'll be much more work from home, even when everyone's vaccinated. There'll be more online education. There'll be more calls done by Zoom. And I think this will be a better world for the introverts, a worse world for the extroverts. And we will all have to make major adjustments psychologically, financially, otherwise, because although many things will bounce back, I don't think it will be that old world, like you said. I used to fly to Asia multiple times a year to give talks. Lately, I've been giving talks to Asia by Zoom. I'm not sure I'm going to be flying over two years from now, maybe some of the time, but not like I had been doing. We're all into the Zoom thing now. It is worse, but so is being on a plane to, you know, Seoul, South Korea for 13 and a half hours. So there's a trade-off. No, I hear you. But the pandemic has awakened a couple of things in me. I've come to some epiphanies. And one is that I actually don't think a fully online educational experience is the best one for students. Agree. The pandemic actually taught me that. Before then, I would probably tell you I don't know, but I actually know it now. And because of what I've seen happen primarily with our students, right, they actually need that one-on-one, that direct interaction. You actually can look at students when you're trying to teach them a difficult concept. Their body language gives you context clues on how they're actually getting or not getting whatever it is you're telling them. And you then use those context clues to change the manner of which you're speaking or to embellish more or to go into more detail. You know, sometimes when you're talking to these folks on Zoom, you don't even see their faces. They all go to their pictures or just the title of their first and last name. You don't see anything. And so I know what we have now is better, but not totally. There are circumstances where this thing does work, does work extraordinarily well. I just don't think we can go fully one way or fully the other. I think we're going to see a hybrid world. You know, I had students take my principles of economics class from Pakistan, from India. They can't do face-to-face. They're there. Right. That's a fact. So that will bring major adjustments. I think we'll have for many classes both online and face-to-face. Online might be serving the whole world like it's already doing in a way. And here's a way to put it. I mean, we've both been to school. Let's take a thought experiment. You could get rid of the worst quarter of the classes you had and sub in online. Would Mm -hmm. you take that trade? 
Every person I've ever asked says yes. Every person I've ever asked said, the worst quarter of my classes, I hardly learned anything. So the goal is not to have online sub-in for your best classes, but to let people choose, have professors, degrees, majors compete, and have it sub-in for your worst classes. And that is definitely a gain. Never thought about it that way, but that is so true. Think how bad your worst class was, wherever it was. I'm not going to ask you to name names, but... (laughs) I just hope some of my former students don't think that my class was their worst class. Anyway, so from an economic perspective, where should institutions like ours focus? How can we help society benefit the most? That's a very big question, but if you're asking about online, I don't think anyone has the answers, but I think if we do experimentation and competition and flexible adjustment, we will win that one. We will beat Yale again. We will beat out a lot of other schools that are too exclusivist, too elite, too complacent in how they already do things. Maybe Harvard can be complacent, but we cannot and should not. And a truly inclusive education, I think almost by necessity, is partly online. It's definitely hybrid. It is definitely and strongly face-to-face for many or most students. But it is not only that. We ought to be reaching the whole world with our research. I believe very much in open access research. Professors should be making their writings accessible to broader audiences. And the same should be true of class. Now you're an economist. I am. <laughs> and look, the, the revenue you're an model. Economist, so, so, so talk to me about the revenue model for that. Right now we have George Mason students registered at George Mason, living in Pakistan, taking my class. Why can't all of Pakistan be taking my class? Now they need to apply. That's not so simple. I get that. But I think there are ways of doing it cheaply enough where we can be teaching literally to the entire world, at least English-speaking world, maybe over time more than that, right? I mean, let's experiment, but let's start with English. Spanish, you know, why not? But start with English and just see who's interested and just try it for a few classes, iterate, experiment, data-driven, feedback, always be willing to admit when you're wrong, it's not working, right? right? Let reality clobber you in the head. From an economic perspective as a country, what kinds of things should we do and look at that we're not looking at now in order to give us the greatest societal benefit going forward from an economic standpoint. Here's two priorities I have. I wouldn't say no one's looking at them, but I don't think we're taking them seriously enough. The first is just literally to get everyone vaccinated and get rid of people just being afraid of risk when they don't need to be. Every person who does not have an immunological problem or religious reason not to vaccinate, every American vaccinated so that everything is up and running. And I can go to an NBA game and just not worry at all about anything. And yes, everyone pays lip service to that, but our rate of vaccinating is declining somewhat and we need to obsess on total rapid, speedy execution there. The other is making work from home or study from home a better deal for women with children than is currently the case. And I'm not sure how to do that. Uh, I'm far from an expert on that topic. And again, a lot of people will pay lip service to that, but it is truly a priority given we are going to do more from home. It will be eased somewhat when schools are open, but there's still summer or there's after 3.30 or there's weekends, whatever. And that to me is a major new social problem that we need to fix pretty quickly. Otherwise, that gap between men and women is going to get much larger. It already has during the last year. 
We need to remedy that. I wish I knew how. Sounds like another project for <laughs> emergent fast grants is, <laughs> is what I, we'll you see. know, you, you uh, need to find one of your billionaire friends and say, hey, let's tackle this problem. If anyone has a proposal, uh, I urge you to send it in. Just Google <laughs> Emergent Ventures and fill out the form and we'll see. So you, you say this, but you actually may get one. That's the amazing Good. thing. Exactly. That's the amazing thing. So since, since we're on this subject, I don't know if you heard the address to the Joint Houses of Congress. And I just talked about now is the time to put forward bold ideas. And what Biden is putting forward is his bold idea, right? By golly, we're going to invest and spend our way out of this thing. Yeah, I don't know how well or not well this will work, but that's seems to be the direction in which he's going. What do you think about that? And how would you do it differently if you if you would? The Biden administration has now passed legislation to spend $1.9 trillion. Right. Uh, in my view as an economist, that number has been too high. I would rather spend some of that money on other purposes. There was an economic report this morning. Right now, the U.S. economy is growing at an annualized rate of 6.4%. That's right. That's amazing, great news. It doesn't need stimulus. We do need money for other problems. Green energy would be one long list of problems in this but country. that's in the next plan who knows about the next plan i think you have to get priorities done now you can't count on there being a next plan coalitions are fragile so i think they've already lost an opportunity i would have spent less on stimulus more on other things but something they're trying to do that i'm very enthusiastic about there are two proposals at intermediate stages to set up science funding agencies that will bring additional diversity to the science funding process so one would be an arm of the nih where funding would be given out by program heads rather than by peer review Another would be either inside or outside the NSF. It would be DARPA-like, and it would inject a lot of funding to new innovative projects, taking a lot of chances. And we're not sure what will happen with either of those. To me, science is an absolute priority. We should try to create both of those agencies. In my view, they should be outside both the NIH and the NSF. I fear that they won't be. They'll just be captured by the old system. You can even be a fan of the old system, but we need more different methods of assigning funding to science in this country. We have a kind of monoculture. So I see some forces in the Biden administration and also some of the Republicans fighting for these changes. I'm not sure they will win, but I, I'm very interested in those policies. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So you're a very accomplished guy from humble beginnings. You put all this stuff together. You raise money. You've had a substantial impact and continue to do so. You hadn't even talked about some of the other things Mercatus is involved in beyond emergent ventures and fast grants. So what would you tell our students? What would you tell our graduates who want to make a difference, even at the grassroots level? You're asking me, what would I tell? Ask me, what do I tell them, right? Okay, I tell them well, the hey, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I say, make the world tell you no. It's not that everyone's going to succeed with every idea. Take in feedback, respond to criticism, have a great set of peers and mentors. But at the end of the day, you need to try with your dream or it is never going to happen. Because if you are not behind it 100%, no one else will be either. 
So, you know, can do positive optimism, even in troubled times. Very important to keep that attitude. And there's plenty wrong in the world. We might even disagree what's wrong, but don't complain too much. Move forward with your idea. People might disagree with you, but they will respect you. But if you self-sabotage, like here's seven reasons why I can't do it. I don't know. I think people complain too much. If I may be allowed to complain about complaining for just a moment. (laughs) And believe it or not, even some people in academia complain. Can you imagine that? No, they don't. No way. I've never heard a complaint in academia. <laughs> Not what at our school, about? right? But at other There's schools. Nobody ever complained. There's a few complaints at some of the other schools, believe it or not. <laughs> All right. So, look, you're an interesting guy, as I just said. So at 15 years old, you were New Jersey Open chess champion. Yes. A year later, you were nationally ranked. Somehow, you moved from chess to economics, right? Right. You still play chess? No, not at all. I watch it online. It's fun. But I don't put real time into it. Why not? You either do it whole hog or not at all. I think that's... So you you have two speeds. All out, pedal to the metal, or stop? Pretty much, yes. (laughs) And for chess, it's stop. Like if I watch a game online, I'll spend like four minutes a day glancing at it periodically. And that's fun. But it's more like a break from my work. Play, it's like you start worrying, am I winning? How am I doing? But I guess while you're watching these games, you probably can say to yourself, this was a bad move. Sure. The computer tells me anyway, right? That's the the fun part. (laughs) (laughs) So you describe Quake books as books that shake and shape the way you view the world, right? What were yours? What were the ones that shook your world growing up? Friedrich Hayek, a lot of his essays may be more than a book. Mm-hmm. Milton Friedman, some of Ayn Rand. I don't like her as a philosopher, but I like her belief in capitalism. Those were very early books for me, had a big impact on me. I would say my views have changed on many things, including those books, but I, I do still believe in a lot of it. Any particular concepts that you read from Friedman or Rand or any of them that kind of stuck with you early or that put you in that position? Well, I think there's two key insights of economics that everyone should take on, no matter what their views are of economics or politics. The first is there are always trade-offs, and you see this in universities, of Mm -hmm. course. The second is incentives matter. And just thinking through how those two truths shape our world is, to me, the main thing economics does. But it takes you many, many decades to see just the power of those two ideas. Always trade-offs, incentives matter. And that's what economists can agree upon, though, of course, they're going to disagree on many policies due to values and other features. But what we should teach our students are those core truths. Always trade-offs, incentives matter. So you mentioned Ayn Rand. What is your favorite work of hers? Is it Atlas Shrugged or what? I don't know. I mean, I think now they're all unreadable in a way. They're like over the top. They're polemic. They're not responsible. She says so many things that are wrong. I think altruism is wonderful. She thinks it's terrible. So I don't know where to end with the criticisms, but I think there's some sense that she, oddly, she and Marx have this in common. She understands the power of productive capitalism to improve people's lives. Her Mm -hmm. vision of that I find very persuasive. And even though she was wrong about so many things, I felt she wrote down that vision better than almost anyone else. And that's what has stuck with me. But if you kind of quiz me on her view of this, view of that, it's like, no, 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 that's wrong. I don't agree. (laughs) But her view on this productive capitalism is what you think is... That people need to produce things to make life better for everyone. And she had that. Interesting. And as an immigrant to America, she embodied some kind of spirit that is admirable. 
and we we have in most of our immigrants. Well, well, yeah, that's exactly. He understood right. America better than a lot of Americans. When I interviewed Nubar Afayan, who's the the founder of Moderna, he was on my podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, "How can we get more people like you to come to America?" He came from Lebanon, ethnic Armenian, and he said, "I would like Americans to be a bit more like our immigrants because often we immigrants appreciate America more than you do." And I vowed not to be one of those Americans who doesn't appreciate what's great about America. Isn't that something? Yeah, and in Northern Virginia, it's one of the best parts of the country for seeing that every day, of course. Not the only part, but I think we've done immigration better, say, than California has. I know you're from California. I've Well, I came came from California. Exactly. Uh, We have the best record of assimilation and integration, but still staying diverse at the same time. Not that we're all alike. In Northern Virginia, I think of any single spot in the United States. And again, GMU is a part of that. We're an enabler and we're a beneficiary of it as well. This is good. This kind of segues into this next topic I want to talk to you about. So you're co-authoring a new book about what the social sciences know about finding talent. Correct. Just this morning, I was meeting with a cohort of local CEOs. And if I just had a dollar jar and put a dollar in for every time a local CEO or a director or a senior VP or someone of that ilk mentions the word talent is our lifeblood. We just have to get more talent. It's all about talent. Just a dollar for each time. I'd be pretty well off. I could probably fund the emergent (laughs) Fast Grants program. Anyway, there's no systematic current book on finding talent that has become focal or seminal. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Well, let's talk about it. How can society get better at finding talent and why is it so difficult? I think it's so difficult because it's not about fixed rules. It's not about always hire the person from this school or hire the person who wears this kind of shoes. I think it's closest to music or art appreciation. So you can't boil that down to fixed rules either. But if you spend a lot of time studying music or art or some other areas, you can become much better at it. But there are never fixed rules for what's a great symphony or, you know, what's a good pop song. Is that really true? Yes. But there are some rules. There are some. They're not quite rules. rules. There are principles. They all have exceptions. But I think when it comes to talent, for most jobs, we actually overrate the importance of intelligence. We underrate the importance of values. And we underrate the importance of what I call durability, a dedication to mission, to oneself, and the ability to keep on going in the face of adversity. And again, it depends on the job you're hiring for, but some of the lessons I try to teach people are to look for those qualities. Don't obsess over the person being too much like you. That's the most common mistake almost all interviewers make. People appreciate those like themselves best because that's what they know, right? It doesn't have to be prejudice in the evil sense, but nonetheless, it's too easy to slip into that habit and to always be jolting yourself out of that habit Hmm. by looking for something different from yourself. Oh, that's really, really interesting. When I interview people, when I look for people who are going to be a part of a team that I'm managing or leading, I have a term that when all else fails, I look for the eye of the tiger. Yes. It comes from the old Rocky movies. And I remember him going to a gym and Apollo Creed was training him and he tells him, see, you've lost this eye. You don't have it anymore. And he said, look at all these guys in here. Just look at them. And you can see it in their faces. They have the eye of the tiger. That's right. It's that grit. It's that will. And people who practice and train in the way that an athlete or a concert pianist would for any job, 
I look for them. They wake up every morning and they ask themselves, what can I do today to get better? And a lot of days they might even fail at that endeavor. That's fine. But if they're asking that question every day, I am very interested in them. Oh, man. This is exciting. I love it. I love it. This is good stuff. So tell me about the book. When is it coming out? The book is due out early next year. My co-author is a venture capitalist named Daniel Gross, who runs a VC company called Pioneer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Daniel lives in uh, San Francisco, and the project is progressing. We have a book contract with St. Martin's of Macmillan. It probably would have come out already, but there's some pandemic-related delays, and it'll be out next year. And the title is simply Talent. Simple, to the point, this is a book about talent. And you feel that in the end, this book will define those tools, those principles that you should look at and look for when you're searching for talent in your organization. Correct. But I also wish to stress, we are what I call fallibilists. We don't think we have all the answers. We want to start a national and indeed international conversation on how to find talent in places we are not currently finding talent. So we think we have useful perspective, a lot of good tips, our own views, but we want other people to improve on what we're doing because we know we do not have the problem licked. We know this for sure, right? Outstanding. So what was your career arc? I know you're, you're Mason through and true, but how did you get there? You know, I, I, I'm a weirdo. That's like the main thing to understand about me. Mm-hmm. So I thought early on, I want to spend the rest of my life reading ideas, talking about ideas, writing down ideas, having discourse with people. So how do you do that? Well, you do it through universities, right? So after Mason, I went to Harvard for my PhD, which I got in 1987. My first job was at your former school, UC Irvine, right? We're both former anteaters. Former anteaters. Learned a lot there, loved it. But in time, the call to come back to Northern Virginia, to George Mason. And I just kept on saying, you know, Tyler, you said at the beginning, Mason is a place that does things differently. If you really believed in that, as you did, and it you did well by that, you should double down on that. I'm a big believer in the double down, the triple down, the quadruple down. So I came back here about 30 years ago and have just tried to build since then, like positive growth orientation and uh, reach public audiences. I run a podcast. I've blogged every day now for 18 years. As you said, I write for Bloomberg just to be out there in the arena. And I think that's how you learn. It's how you meet people. It's how you develop a network. And just, you know, as I said, wake up every morning and ask yourself, what can I do today to be better than I was yesterday? Is that how you stretch yourself? You know, you talked about training like an athlete. Is that how you become better in your craft? What do you do to make yourself better? I write every day, no matter what. And some of that writing I throw out. A lot of it's not any good. I mean, certainly people who disagree might tell you it's all not any good. But even I know, like a lot of it's just not any good. And it just stays dormant forever. No one ever sees it. But I work through ideas. There was a process. If it's Christmas, if it's my birthday, if it's Sunday, that day I am still going to write. Doesn't matter. I live by that philosophy. Whatever you do, I know, doesn't apply to every job. But... Try to do it every day. Just see what happens. And that is the best way to become smarter. One thing I don't like about people who are sort of obsessed with intelligence is that obsession keeps them from becoming smarter because it's what you make of yourself. You know, I'm 59 years old. I obviously have a lot of peers in the profession, economics, and the percentage of them that are still at it every day is actually really small, even if they're still like productive or very well known. And if you just do that your whole life, I think you can just get so far. 
that shines a new light on what is it the two thousand or the ten thousand hour rule? Right? That's like way. That's like nothing. That's like thirty minutes. <laughs> and here's the other thing: the other people who live by this philosophy, they're a minority, but they're out there in every field, every business sector, every nonprofit sector. But they will recognize it in you, like a light shining, and you will bond with them with that as an important thing. And the best way to network is to try to be worth networking with. Well, look, these are tremendous life lessons. I hope our students are connected to this and they are getting it because you are giving us some gems today. Let's shift gears a little bit. You once wrote that to fight climate change, people should have more children. Yes. Now, when you hear that, that sounds like, wait, wait, wait what? Uh, this is kind of anti-Malthusian. What's going on here? So talk a little bit about that. Our greatest virtue as human beings in many fights is our ability to innovate. For me, more people means more potential innovators. It also means a larger market for any innovation that someone else comes up with. So if you're only selling your innovation, you know, to three or four million people, you might innovate, but your incentive is not as strong. If you're selling your innovation to an America of, say, 480 million people, which I would gladly see. That's a bigger market, stronger incentive, more funds, more venture capital money, more everything, more schools, more professors. I think we're more likely to succeed in many of our fights as a more populous nation, which of course largely is going to be done from immigration. I'm all for if people want to have more kids, but look, the reality is America's at about replacement. That probably won't change anytime soon. And I think we could be a lot more dynamic and we will be. And you look at the mRNA vaccines from Germany, from Moderna, done by immigrants. Yes. And not like by the prototypical Swedish engineers, immigrants from Turkey and Lebanon. No, I get it. But you know what? To be totally honest with you, it's always been the case. Sure. And my That's always forefathers been the case. were also immigrants. Yeah. It's yeah. always been the case in the country. This country has been built on the backs of people who have come here. Some of them... Not all immigrants, of course. That's right. Yes. Some of them voluntary, some of them involuntary, but come here nonetheless, and they've all contributed, and they've contributed in a dramatic way. And in my opinion, that's the actual secret sauce. Yes. And you I know, want more of that. More sauce on my food, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you 100%. You know, when you think about this whole concept of climate change, and I know this is an area where you have given a lot of thought to. Back in 2014, you were warning about how significant climate change could be. And you you were right on point, right? So seven years later, are you convinced that we have the technologies to fix the problem without bankrupting the country? I'm much more optimistic now than 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I thought electric vehicles were maybe 30 years off Ain't on a large something? scale. And now it's within 10 years, right? No, it's within, well, it's they now. Exist, it's, but as the dominant vehicle on the road, right? Okay, no, I get that. Just uh, having a few is nice, but we No, need, no, I get it. I get yeah. it. You're probably right. I would say between five and 10 years, the predominant number of vehicles will be electric, without question. Correct. Right. Now, for the last 10 years, solar and wind power have been falling in cost at about 10 to 15 percent a year. That was not obvious 10 years ago that that would be the case. We mm -hmm. have many innovators and also immigrants and also China to thank for that and Germany and Spain. That's great. That's more progress than I had been expecting. I think the key issue of incorporating those now quite cheap energy sources into the broader infrastructure 
in a way that secures reliability. That's still hard, but it used to be like the whole thing was hard. Now a lot of key pieces are only years away from really being in place, and the rest I think we will manage. And the closer it gets, the more interest there will be. And the number of young people interested in solving the remaining pieces of the puzzle, higher than it's ever been around the whole world. So when like 17 different parts of a problem seem impossible, a lot of people don't tackle it, right? Right. But if you've taken care of like 14 of those 17, it's a big deal, the problem, and people see there's three remaining pieces, you're going to do it. No, I get it. So as we start to wrap up here, let's get back to economics a little bit. How do you square your take in your book, The Complacent Class, in which you argue that the United States is standing still and not willing to innovate with people who are risk averse? I think a lot of Americans have been too risk averse, but note the final chapter in that book. So that book came out, I think, four years ago, give or take. And what I say in the last chapter is our nation is about to be hit by a major crisis that we will not be ready for, and that will jolt us out of our complacency, and we will respond. And I think that is exactly what has happened. I did not know it would be coronavirus. But look, the vaccines have been a marvel. We screwed up the whole response early on really bad for quite some time. But we will walk away out of this feeling proud that we nailed it, that we will have done a lot to help the rest of the world. I'm very proud we're sending aid to India right now. We are coming out of this, I think, with a reinvigorated America. It is tragic to me that we needed such a bad event. But I think we are now less complacent. But we still have competitors. Those competitors are real. In some sense, you can say China has come out of the coronavirus stronger than the U.S. in terms of they didn't lose as much in terms of death and change of lifestyle. The fact that Russia has so many of our secrets now through the solar winds hack, through other kinds of things, we still are trying to figure out the level of the depths of the breach. Right. But we know that it's, it's bad. Devastating. Yeah. Right. These are things that put us there are issues to, to worry about. Right. Of course. And so, yes, there is an awakening that clearly has happened because of coronavirus. I contend that the challenges in front of us now are even greater. All of the challenges associated with climate change, all of the challenges associated with many of the issues that we had to deal with before 2019 are still with us in 2021. Yes. And we've created new challenges on top of those. The problem is bigger, but opportunity is greater, too. So we now have vaccine trials for a malaria vaccine. Most people tell me it works. Maybe Hmm. it hasn't passed every test yet. That's a big deal. We're now using CRISPR to basically fix sickle cell anemia. That's a big deal. It works. It's not yet like a thing that everyone is getting, but like the electric cars, probably in less than 10 years, it will be a thing that everyone who needs it can get. So I think in the biomedical sciences in particular, we've seen this phenomenal rush of progress based largely on broader, more inclusive access to computational resources Mm -hmm. around the whole world. And we're just getting started with this. So I'm more excited than I was three years ago. And I remember people telling me at the beginning of the pandemic, quickest we'll ever get a vaccine is four years, and China will beat us to it, and their vaccine will be better than ours. And none of that is true. So we don't know that. 
how well their vaccine works, do we? They won't let it really they be tested. Let, they, no, it's maybe 50, 60 percent. They have three main vaccines, 50, 60 percent. Chile is using them. Chile, is, they're getting disillusioned with the Chinese vaccine. They want more Pfizer. You know, Pfizer, BioNTech, which is part German, of course, but that and the Moderna, those are the gold standard of vaccines. I agree. And they are ours. And we should be very proud of that, very grateful to those who did the work. And that's going to be a big deal for America. Those vaccines, which are most effective against the variants also, they are going to save the world. Outstanding. I love it. I love it. Okay, last item. Last item. I promise. Okay. What are your views on cryptocurrencies? Bitcoin, I think, is a competitor to gold. It's a store of value. It's part of a portfolio. I'm not sure how socially useful it is, but if people want to hold it, it's fine. It's not something I do. Obviously, I've missed out a lot. I think what Bitcoin is is kind of a fixed static thing at this point. Pretty predictable. Now, the real interest is in the other cryptocurrencies. Like, like Ethereum, exactly. Dogecoin, and the like. Especially Ether and Ethereum. Those are possibly platforms for people to execute and pull off a lot of internet-based trades and exchanges and businesses and legal contracts that never had been possible before. But we don't know. This is not like electric cars where it's like about to happen. This is like, we still don't know. Those could be revolutionary or they could just not take off. Well, you, you talked a little bit before about taking risk. Yeah, I, I'm they, glad people are trying. And you don't have any of these in your portfolio? I should. You know, Vitalik Buterin, who's head of the whole Ethereum project, we had him in to George Mason uh -huh. several years ago. He came with his camera. He took photos of us all. He told us how excited he was to be here because GMU and Mercatus was a major inspiration for him. And he made a point of visiting us physically, which typically he doesn't do that much. So I am rooting for him. Wait a minute. So he did that. He, he came that. and he spoke clearly about Ethereum and the like, right? At Mercatus. We recorded the podcast. It's online. You can Google to the photos. My name and his. Is. It's all right there. And somehow you still didn't buy any Ethereum. Help me. Help me to understand this. Well, one issue here. My wife works for the SEC. Right? Uh oh, okay. So there's limits on our financial positions. I see. Uh, it's more complicated than that. But I have lived a whole life. I told you I'm a weirdo. So now you're going to start believing it. Never wanted to do consulting. I just thought I want to be an information billionaire and just obsess over like study, writing, talking with people. So I've never done investment, never done trading, never done crypto, nothing. Mm -hmm. I just like buy and hold some big fund, forget about it, don't even open my portfolio to take a look and like focus on my thing. And that's crazy, right? But that's been my life. You know, Einstein had five versions of the same suit. I get it because yeah. you're not wasting time thinking about those investments. You know, I worry about it in some ways. I think there are things you learn from trading that you don't learn from just reading about it. But trading for me, maybe it's a bit like chess. Like you, you do that and try to earn a lot of money or you don't do it. Mm -hmm. And I chose not to do it. No, I get it. I get it. Well, look, this has been just a fabulous conversation. I am really, really grateful that you've given us the time. You know, usually you're on the other end of the mic. That's correct. And so I feel grateful to be able to, to put you on this other side and, and, and interview you like you've interviewed <laughs> others. I wish we had more time to explore more of these topics further. And I have no doubt in my mind that the next great thing is going to happen for you. And that will provide us another opportunity. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And I'd just like to say a general big hello and thanks of gratitude for all the listeners out there in the George Mason University community. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff, Tyler. I want to thank Tyler Cohen, the whole 
Robert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University and the faculty director of the Mercatus Center for his time and fascinating insights. You can catch his podcast, Conversations with Tyler, at conversationswithtyler.com and check out his blog, Marginal Revolution, at marginalrevolution.com. This is Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.